Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel this morning? We're going to be uh, in the Old Testament for the next few months through the summer. Uh, If you've been here a while, you know I like to preach through books of the Bible, and I like to go back and forth between uh, the New Testament text as well as some of the Old Testament passages. Because as Paul says, that everything was written, everything that was written in the past in the Old Testament was written for our instruction, our help, so that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And I would hope that would come out of this message this morning as we talk about something that I think is very relevant for our day, the leadership crisis. All right, let's take a look at this passage, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and uh, I'd like to read part of it as we begin, and then we'll move into the text. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives, one was called Hannah, and the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. And year after year this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you speak to us again through the scriptures? And take this passage that was written long ago and use it for our benefit today. Instruct us, encourage us, and may we find hope in your word too. Amen. Well, as we have mentioned, this Thursday is the National Day of Prayer, the 59th annual observance of a day of prayer for our country. And there will be literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of believers that are going to gather in churches in homes and places of business across our land to pray for our nation. Will you be one of them? I would hope so. As I've observed things like National Day of Prayer, though, through the years, I've noticed that often there is kind of an ebb and flow to it. There are times when people come out in large numbers to pray, and other times when there's not so many, only a few that actively participate. And I wonder if sometimes people just lose heart or begin to wonder, does this really make any difference at all, whether we pray or not? I mean, haven't we been praying about a lot of these same issues in our land for a long time? It is easy to be discouraged when we look at the things going on in our nation. I mean, you listen to the news or you hear the stories about the economy or maybe personally you've been looking for a job and you're unemployed or it's hard to find work right now. We hear the stories about crime or child abuse or we see the issues of poverty and racism and immorality in our land. 
And those of us that are older look back and we see things now that are put on billboards and television and movies that once were shocking but now seem almost commonplace. And we get discouraged by that. We feel that. And we see decisions that are being made even in our courts like this judge in Wisconsin who recently ruled that, you know, in his opinion, the National Day of Prayer is unconstitutional. You know, and, and we see decisions like that that are being more and more uh, taking us farther away from God. And I wonder about these things that have been so much a part of our nation's history, like a day of prayer. I mean, many of our presidents and national leaders have called us to pray even before President Truman made this an annual event. It's easy to be discouraged, and we can wonder does God care? And does he hear our prayers? The answer of the scripture is a resounding yes. And I would pray that as we look at this passage of scripture this morning, that you would be encouraged by it and encouraged to pray for our country. You see, the book of Samuel begins with the nation of Israel in a crisis. For about 300 years, a little more than that, they had gone through this cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance, and restoration. As a nation, in that time of the judges, they would go through these times when they would rebel against God. God would give them over to their sin or give them over to their enemies. They would feel the consequences of that until finally, after a number of years, they would cry out to God in repentance. And God would answer. And He would raise up a deliverer, a judge, who would lead them and restore them as a people. And they kept going through in the book of Judges these cycles, though, and it seemed like this downward spiral that was leading to more and more chaos until finally, at the end of the book of Judges, there is this verse that says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if that was the way that it was going in our country where everyone simply did what they thought was right? I mean, it may feel at times like we're moving that, but at least we live in a land still with a rule of law and a certain understanding of what's right and wrong. And here in Israel, it had declined to this point morally and spiritually where everyone just did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And we see where the book of Judges ends. The nation of Israel was in a sorry state, spiritually, morally, and politically. And God's answer to their condition was to raise up a man who would lead them. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel were originally written as one book. And 1 and 2 Samuel tell the story of three men, three leaders that God used in that time. The first is Samuel. He's the leader that God provided, this prophet and priest who would lead them. Then there was Saul, the leader the people wanted. And they wanted him because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And they looked at Saul and he was this fine looking man who stood tall and broad shouldered. And they thought this is the way a king should look. And they wanted to follow him. And then there's David, the leader after God's own heart. This man who others would have overlooked that God chose to lead the nation. As we go through this study, we're going to look at their lives and we're going to look at certain qualities that they had that will show us some things that God has to say about leadership, 
about the kind of leaders we should follow and about the kind of leaders we should be. Because all of us, in a sense, have an area where we influence others. Even if you may not see yourself as a leader, in your home you have an influence upon your children as a parent, or in your neighborhood or place of work you have an influence upon others. God wants you to have that kind of positive influence. So what does he have to say about leadership? That's what we're going to look at. But 1 Samuel is primarily a book about God. It's about the God who makes something out of nothing and who uses ordinary people to accomplish great things. That, I love that statement. I love that. That is so full of hope for me that God is a God who makes something out of nothing and who uses ordinary people, nobodies in the world's eyes, to accomplish great things for Him. Because when He does that, He gets the glory. So how did God work in this situation in the nation of Israel, and how does He work today? Well, God starts with a person. He starts with a man or a woman whose heart is devoted to Him. And He begins to work. And that's what we see in this story here. Samuel tells us about a certain man. And this man is unknown to us, but known to God. He's an ordinary man. And he's living in an out-of-the-way place. This little town of Ramathayim. I mean, nobody had heard of that, it seems. It's called Rama for short. It's about 16 miles west of Shiloh, which was the place at that time where people went to worship. He is a Zufite. What's that mean? Well, it means he's a descendant of the Kohathites. And those were the individuals, the Levites, that had responsibility to move the ark to care for the ark when it was being transported from one area to the other. So he's from this family line, but he's still relatively unknown. His name is Elkanah. His name literally means God has created a son. It's prophetic in a sense. Here's this man who, through his wife Hannah, has no children, no descendants through her, and God's going to do something about that. And so often in Scripture, God uses uh, these individuals and their name has significance. There's a a meaning tied to it. It may be a pun. It may be uh, humorous. Like, you know, when God raised up and gave Abraham and Sarah the son Isaac, his name means laughter because Sarah laughed about that. How can I have a son in my old age? And so you have names that have meaning. And here is Elkanah. God has created a son. And he has two wives. One is Hannah, whose name means grace, and the other is Penina, whose name means ruby. Hannah is barren. Hannah is unable to have children. And at that time, that was about the worst thing that could happen to a woman. In that culture, the ability to have a child to be able to carry on the family name was of prime importance. And she was barren. The Lord had closed her womb. And so um, Elkanah took a second wife, Penina. And she has lots of children. It seems like it's not a problem for her, and we're going to see the issues that that causes in the relationship. It was not prohibited at that time for a man to take a second wife in a circumstance like this, but it was never a good thing in Scripture. It never quite worked out well. 
there was always strife and tension as we see and we know that that is not God's will for us today and from the scriptures but he is a faithful man he's a man who's living in obedience to the commandments as best he understands them and we see that in his uh, commitment year after year this man would go up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh three times a year every male Israelite was required to go to the the tabernacle to worship and so he goes and he brings his offering there and when we read about him here we see he is also a generous man he was generous to the Lord in giving his sacrifices and he was also generous with his family he would give portions of meat to Penina and her sons and daughters and to Hannah he gave a double portion to try and compensate her for the loss that she felt because every time when they went up to worship it was just like a thorn in her flesh because her rival kept provoking her. What's interesting about Elkanah is he did not do that. He loved Hannah and he didn't blame her. It wasn't her fault that she was not having children. He believed in God's sovereignty and the Lord had closed her womb. And even though he didn't understand everything about that, he trusted God. He's the kind of person in that sense that we should be too, who hold on to God's sovereignty and understand that there is a reason for everything even when we can't understand it. But we will trust him and we will be faithful. And as they go up to this worship celebration, Penina now is taunting Hannah and she would do that year after year she would provoke her to the point of tears and you can imagine some of the things that she might have said you know she might have said that Elkanah loves me more because I'm able to have children or you must have done something really bad for the Lord to close your womb and she kept throwing it in her face Hannah would weep and Elkanah would try to comfort her So here's this story of this family with a personal crisis, a tragedy, if you will, of their own. And what does that have to do with the nation of Israel? And why does the story begin here? It is because when God addresses the needs of a nation, he starts with an individual, one man or one woman who is faithful and devoted to him. In his book on spiritual leadership, J. Oswald Sanders writes that God and man are constantly searching for leaders in the various branches of Christian enterprise. In the scriptures, God is frequently represented as searching for a man of a certain type. Not men, but a man. Not a group, an individual. And you see that in these verses of scripture. For example, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, It says, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. In Jeremiah 5, verse 1, God says, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem and see if you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth and I will forgive this city. Here it is. I mean, Jerusalem standing under judgment and God is saying, go through the city. See if you can find one person who deals honestly, who loves me with all their heart and seeks the truth, and I'll forgive this city. And in Ezekiel 22.30, he said, I looked for a man among them 
who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. I found none. What a sorry condition that would be. You know, when God looks at our land, He looks for those individuals who will be faithful, who will be intercessors, who will stand in the gap for Him, will stand in the gap in their schools or in their community or in politics and government, wherever God may call us, individuals who will be faithful and who will stand for truth and stand for Him. When you hear passages of Scripture like this, does it just pull at your heart? And doesn't your heart want to say, Lord, I want to be that man, I want to be that woman who will stand in the gap for you? That's what God was doing in Israel. What else does God do? Well, secondly, He moves us to pray. He moves us to pray for the situations at hand. Hannah faced this personal crisis. Again, for her, it was just a tragedy that caused her to weep. It broke her heart, not being able to have children. And so Hannah did something about it. She prayed. And listen to how the story unfolds beginning at verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled, and I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Let's stop there. Hannah did something about her crisis. She prayed. Have you ever noticed how often God uses circumstances to get us to pray? I mean, it might be a personal crisis of our own. I think most of the requests that are sent around our prayer chain are for health concerns, for people in need or facing a difficult situation. Sometimes it's those end-of-life issues that we deal with. Sometimes it's an accident that's happened or a serious illness that's been diagnosed, and it moves us to pray. Sometimes it's a financial need or a son or daughter that we are concerned about. Sometimes it's a marriage that's in crisis. Or sometimes it's a larger event like a war or something like 9-11 where we saw a, a, you know, a bump kind of afterwards of interest in spiritual things and then as life gets back to normal, sadly it begins to wane. But God uses circumstances to get our attention and to move us to pray. 
Hannah prayed and she was weeping as she prayed and she asked God for what she deeply desired. She said, God, I want a son. Would you open my womb and allow me to have a son? She wept as she prayed. When was the last time we wept in prayer? I think about that when I read passages like this. When was the last time we were so moved by something that we poured out our heart to God like that and we just wept? We wept for those we loved. We wept maybe for our nation. Maybe it was for the salvation of a friend, a brother, a sister in our family. Has God moved you to pray for some need in that way where you are praying with all your heart? And Hannah made a vow to God, a Nazarite vow. A vow that she would give this son to the Lord and no razor would be used on his head. It was part of that Nazarite vow. He would not drink strong drink or wine. Was it a bargain she was making with God? I don't think so. I want to believe the best about Hannah here and that I don't think she was trying to bargain with God. I think she was being earnest. God, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you. It reminded me of the story I told you about Tim Tebow, the quarterback in Florida, who when he was in his mother's womb, his mother faced this difficult pregnancy where she was urged to have an abortion. And they chose not to. As strong believers, they chose not to. And they chose to trust God through this. And they said, God, if you will allow us to have this child, we will give him to you for your service. And they were sincere in that prayer of wanting to give this child back to the Lord even as Hannah was. Sometimes we find ourselves in those kind of desperate situations where we have no place else to turn. We have no one to cling to but God. And we come to God and we say, God, would you do this? And I will trust you. She prayed to the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. It's actually the first time that this title is used for God in Scripture is here in 1 Samuel. She is praying to this God who is powerful. He's the God of the armies of heaven. He's the God of the armies of the earth. He rules on high. He is almighty. He can do as He pleases. God, would You work in my situation? Eli the priest misunderstood her prayers. He didn't hear her. He thought she was drunk, which is sort of a sad commentary on the state of affairs in Israel that people were getting drunk at these festivals and then coming to pray or where that was sort of the natural inclination he had here. Rather than thinking of this woman being earnest about her prayer, he's thinking that she has had a little bit too much here. And Hannah protested and explained what she was doing that day, pouring out her heart to the Lord. And Eli answers, May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked. Hannah's prayer changed her. Did you notice that in verse 18? She took those words from Eli as words of assurance. And God in His Spirit had touched her heart and she felt like her prayer had been heard. And she got up and she went and ate where before she could not eat and her face was no longer downcast. 
Have you ever experienced that? I mean, those times when you are praying for something so genuinely, so you are just earnest about it. And there are times when God wants us to pray and pray and pray and pray and we keep on persevering and that's what He wants us to do. But there are other times when we pray and it's like this flood of peace comes. And you know God's answered that. You may not have seen it. You might not see it immediately. But you know that it is done. It has been given in heaven. And that's how Hannah felt. And she went, it was okay. God knows. And so she goes back with her husband. And in time she will conceive a son. You know what Hannah didn't know was that her prayer would change the nation and literally the world as you follow this line through down to Christ. Hannah's prayer was powerful because it was heard on high by God. You see, what we can't see on the front end is how our story and God's story intersect. We don't know that. We don't know how what God's doing in our life today is intersecting with somebody else that's going to touch somebody else, somebody else down the road. We walk by faith. But God is doing that over and over again in ways far beyond what we could see. I feel like that, you know, every time I recently or this week had a phone call with Pastor Obispo down in Guatemala. And when I hear the stories of what God's doing there and I think of how it began and he's sharing his excitement because of America, who we work with, was there and started this pastoral training and met with some of the leaders and the pastors there. And I just marvel at what God's doing and how all of these different pieces have sort of intersected. Sometimes you get to see it. And it's just marvelous. Other times we won't until we get to heaven, but I can tell you countless stories in history where God has done that over and over again. We hear stories, for example, about the First Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What we don't always hear about is, you know the day before in Enfield, in Enfield, Connecticut, where he preached that sermon, a group of believers had been praying and met to pray once again. And they said, God, don't pass us by. God, would you work here in our church, in our community? And they came together to pray. And that next day when Jonathan Edwards preached, God showed up and blessed in an unbelievable way and touched people's hearts. I think of the American Missions Movement that began in part because of a haystack prayer meeting in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Or I think about the New York Revival that began in 1858 because a group of businessmen met at lunchtime to pray, to read the Scriptures and pray for their city and their land. I think about even the Promise Keeper Movement in our own day that started because God put it on the heart of a coach, Bill McCartney, to bring together men, dads, husbands, into stadiums for stadium events. And God used that in a powerful way as people began to join with Him in prayer, touching the hearts of people. Starts with a person, He moves us to pray, and God only knows what will happen when we pray. God only knows what's going to go on as we take those steps of faith and we pray. And then thirdly, and it looks like I'm running out of time, but I'll try to get this last point in. 
What we see in verses 19 and following is that the Lord remembered her prayer. Look at verses 19 and 20. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah. Can you imagine that worship that morning as Hannah felt, God, you've heard, and she rejoiced in the Lord. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When the scripture says the Lord remembered her, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten her or didn't know her. He knows all about us. It means that he remembered her request and acted on her behalf in time. God gives birth to this son. She calls him Samuel, which means literally heard of God, or it sounds like the Hebrew verse for heard of God. And what we see is she begins to raise this child, and when he is at the age, somewhere around three years old, when he is weaned, she will bring him back to the temple there, the tabernacle in Shiloh, and she will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Can you imagine that? She was willing to take this child, the most precious thing to her, and she was willing to give him up in service to the Lord. And in verse 28 it will say that Samuel worshipped the Lord there. God's answer came in the shape of a tiny baby. How many times do we see that in Scripture? That God's answer to a crisis is to raise up an individual in answer to the prayers of parents. He gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. He raised up Moses and protected him in the Nile when other babies were being killed. He raised up John the Baptist to a woman, Elizabeth, who was unable to have children. And ultimately, in Jesus born of a virgin he brought man's greatest solution to all of our needs he sent his son to be our savior sometimes the most significant events in life go quietly unnoticed by all but a few and you can see that over and over again for example in the year 1809 the attention of the world was focused on Europe and the dramatic events taking place there Napoleon was on the march conquering most of Europe Austria was falling. Russia and Sweden were locked in a bitter war. In our country, we were just a fledgling nation. James Madison was inaugurated as president. But we were still kind of struggling to find our feet as a nation. And all the eyes of the world are thinking, hey, the big events are happening over there in Europe. But God was at work. And in that year, in February of 1809, in a little cabin, a one-room cabin on the frontier in Kentucky, a tiny baby was born. His name was Abraham Lincoln. No one had any idea how God would use him in the life of our nation. But God is always at work in those tiny, out-of-the-way places with ordinary people to accomplish great things for him. Does that encourage you? encourages me because that means I qualify, you know, as one of those persons who's out there, unknown, in a little place, trying to do God's work. And the question he asks of us is, you know, are we, we come, excuse me, and we come to situations and we look at our nation and the needs that we have, and we may wonder, does God care about our nation? Yeah, he does. 
Does he care about the circumstances in our life? Yes, he does. And what he's looking for are faithful individuals, a man, a woman, who will join with him in his work and pray. Will we be faithful? Will we pray? You know, because of the time this morning, I think I'll just close our service here at this point. Worship team may want to come up and do the final song as we leave this morning, but I'm just going to close our service in prayer. Father, I thank you for the way in which you work. You are an awesome God who does far beyond what we could think or imagine. You tell us in your word that your eyes are roaming to and fro throughout the earth, that you may find those whose hearts are fully devoted to you. And then you begin to move. God, would you do that in our day? Would you do it in us? Help us to be faithful men and women. Help us to be individuals who pray, who trust you and wait upon you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.